mindfulness mode. There's things, there's things getting in the way of your message, but that doesn't mean you're wrong. Welcome to Mindfulness Mode, and today we're going to be talking about some interesting things, including clown presence and what that means. We're going to be talking to a teacher, a speaker, a writer. He's a comedian with over 25 years of experience helping audiences utilize the power of authenticity, vulnerability, and connection, and the power of humor when you're speaking. So this is going to be interesting. He toured as a clown for contemporary circus Spiegel World and performed with the Blue Man Group. And so this is going to be super interesting. We're here with Don Culliver. Don, are you in mindfulness mode today? I'm in mindfulness mode, Bruce. Thanks for having me. Yeah, my pleasure. So Don, what does mindfulness mean to you? Uh, yeah, mindfulness. Well, I'm, I'm pretty straight down the, the arrow of mindfulness. I'm a meditator, a uh, longtime meditator, and um, it just means being in the present and not in the future or the past. And I am rarely in that place, but I try to be in that place. Yeah. Well, you've certainly had some very interesting experiences, including touring as a clown, that must have been pretty fascinating. And what did that teach you about mindfulness when you started touring as a clown? Well, clown in general requires you to be absolutely present with the audience every second. You can't be worried about next week or last week or anything like that because you need to be ready to make the most out of anything that happens. Like if somebody drops a glass, if someone something happens you need to be ready to drop your plan and immediately play with that at any time so it forces you to be in very mindful of the present wow yeah and so then you were part of the blue man group and was that after touring as a clown or before uh that was after that was like immediately after i was preparing for that during the clown tour yeah and by preparing i mean learning how to drum really fast because to be a blue man group uh, member you need to be a very fast drummer and how long did you do that with a blue man group very short time i was only in new york for a very short time and then i was let go from the group because i there was too much don in my blue man um there's an element of Blue Man Group. If you've seen the show, all the performers ha- are in blue grease paint. And unbeknownst to the audience, oftentimes they'll switch out performers mid-performance and you won't even know because everyone moves the same. Everyone moves their arms the same, looks at the audiences the same. And I had spent so much time developing clown characters that were really based on myself. It mm-hmm. was really hard for me to shake off kind of my idiosyncrasies and the way I move, uh, which frankly, I don't think is a bad thing. I I enjoy and I think it helps me be connected to the audience by being authentic. And that's kind of what I talk about now all the time is being authentic, not trying to be somebody else on stage. Right. Yeah. Well, I can imagine that because seeing the Blue Man Group, you see that really they're exhibiting no personality at all. At least that's how it seems as an audience member, that they're like aliens from another planet, that personality means nothing to them. Does that make mm-hmm. sense? Yeah, yeah. It's There's there's a whole uh, lore and archetypal stuff behind the creation of those characters. And there are subtle, there's three blue men, there are subtle differences in their characters. 
But the truth is they're there to, just like I'm saying a clown is, they're there to be present and take in from the audience and be affected by the audience at all times. Well, I really like what you say about the audience, how you have to be so present and so ready to act on anything that happens because that can really add to your authenticity and just really make it interesting for the audience. I've done a lot of speaking myself, so I'm really interested in how you do that and how you use humor to do that because you're you know, obviously very good at using humor with the audience. How do you use humor in a comfortable way? Because a lot of us, you know, we're not real comfortable with humor, not being a comedian, right? Well, I think it comes back to the subject of your podcast uh, for your listeners. It's being present, uh, being ready to take advantage of any opportunity that presents itself. But I think when it comes to speaking, there's a clown element or a clown, uh, I guess, topic that is very appropriate for public speaking. And the term is called le jeu, and that's French for the game. And what mm -hmm. that means is when you're up there speaking... Uh, you need to find that you need to find pleasure in the connection with your audience, not just pleasure in your content, but pleasure, like enjoyment of actually being there and connecting. And and on top of that, you need to be able to make the most of that pleasure as it's happening. So if you're absolutely like afraid or antagonistic toward the audience, you are not exhibiting le jeu. You yeah. want to find pleasure and excitement in that that back and forth play even if it's not a dialogue you still want to be reacting off of what the audience is giving you and if you can find pleasure in that it opens up a whole realm of uh, possibilities for humor so you've taught speaking for google for some time when did that start uh that started a little bit before the pandemic i was teaching comedy internally at google i was teaching sketch comedy writing and when pandemic happened, I, had, I have quite a background in public speaking. I was a competitor in Toastmasters and I won a, a Toastmasters speaking competition in Los Angeles. And uh, I also speak professionally for companies at trade shows, primarily cybersecurity trade shows. So I had a lot of skills and curriculum that I could teach because that's kind of you often mentor in Toastmasters too. So when pandemic happened, every everything shifted to virtual, and I was like, "Hey, I can I can teach a, a course in public speaking virtually," and it really took off. It's it's really well regarded, and it sells out all the time. And now I'm doing it in person as well, and I've taken it to other companies too, and I've actually started to tweak it. Now I teach a course on technical public speaking as well, specifically for technical presentations. But uh, I love it because there's a huge crossover with clown and i feel that after i came out of my clown experience and i started speaking professionally there's so much that people can be helped with with this content and i feel like it's not being taught out there and it can really help folks i deal with a lot of folks that are non-native speakers and this stuff is incredibly helpful uh uh for them well your book is uh pretty incredible i know that and Thanks. uh pretty incredible to look at the book and see a comment by seth godin this book is a breakthrough a powerful tool for anyone who cares enough to give a speech or a presentation so that's pretty that must feel pretty nice yeah i mean i, I sent the email 
asking Seth Godin for a blurb and, and he got right back to me. I was, I blew my mind. It was incredible. Yeah. That's fantastic. And in the book, you talk about uh, the secrets of clown presence and you've, you've melted them down into five P's, the five P secrets of clown presence. Could you share a couple of those with us? For sure. The five P's are uh, personal confidence. And that's kind of what our realm here, mindfulness, uh, being comfortable with yourself. Second P is preparation, then partnership with the audience. That's what I'm talking about in terms of le jeu, having joy in that back and forth interaction. Then number four is imperfection. Uh, because the clown, the, the, the engine of the clown is imperfection, failure, and then sharing that failure that, that with authenticity with the audience, that's what drives the clown forward in their bits. And then the kind of the pinnacle of presenting with clown presence is play. And that's where the humor comes in. You can start having fun with your audience. Right. And yeah, it's so great when you can have fun with your audience because they enjoy it so much, right? They can just kind of settle in and like, hey, man, this is great. That's what I found anyway with my experience. For sure. I, I love shifting from... Uh, kind of an asynchronous presentation where they might as well be sitting in their living room watching TV to a synchronous presentation where they're like, oh, this is really happening right now. He's talking to people. We're talking to him. Our presence is affecting the way this person is speaking. That, I think, is the pinnacle of presenting with clown presence. Yeah, I love number four imperfection, because I think so often when we go to speak, at least when I was not experienced, I thought, oh my gosh, if I make a mistake, what'll happen? If I don't get this right, this has got to be perfect. I've got to remember everything. But then none of that is true because, you know, imperfection is how you can often make your connection with the audience, right? Exactly. It's so valuable. Uh, I, I use a acronym called ATM. Uh, maybe it's useful for your audience. If, if you if you have a gaffe or a hiccup in your presentation, I like to think ATM first, acknowledge the gaffe. Oops, I spilled my water, something like that. T, yeah. take responsibility. If the tech team screwed up, the audience doesn't want to hear you are you blaming someone. Just be like, oh, I think I had an error with my presentation. Take responsibility and then M, move on. So acknowledge the problem, take responsibility, move on. And then kind of the next level is ATC. Acknowledge the problem, take responsibility, and later connect it to your message. And then maybe when you're going into your call to action, you could be like, and maybe you can avoid problems like when I spilled my water before, and you can kind of do a callback. That's a comedy term, doing a callback. And then the audience will be like, wow, this guy's so present. He's amazing. <laughs> yeah. 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 I love all these tips. I think they're so fantastic. A lot of the time when I was speaking, I was using an alter ego. And uh, that, that was so much fun because my alter ego was a guy who was pretty klutzy. He was pretty crazy and uh, he was a that. DJ. Yeah, uh, because I was <laughs> speaking on the topic of bullying all the time. And so I thought, well, I can't just go into big groups of people, students, whoever they are, and just be at the front telling them what to do, how to act, how to be. You know, nobody's going to buy that. That's not going to be enjoyable. And then I thought, how about if I 
create an alter ego for myself and I'm a DJ. I'm this crazy klutzy DJ and we're coming to you live. So I was a lot of the time doing um, presentations for elementary school kids, you know. So I was doing this radio show and I was coming to you live and then I would make a big deal about, hey, five, four, three, two, one, we're going on the air and you got to be ready. But then I was just this crazy guy, you know, it was just messing everything up and, you know, but getting the message across about bullying and mindfulness and all this kind of stuff. And it was really fun. You know, it was fun for the audience. It was fun for me. And it was that's just, so. Tell me more about this DJ character. Did you have like a whole like radio setup, or what did you? Yes, yes, I had a whole <laughs> setup. Yeah, I had, you know. So the kids like they were transformed. You know, when they would come in to the gym or come into the space, they were like wowed before it even started. And I thought, okay, I've got to do some things to wow them even more. So the lights would get go down and be completely black, and then I'd come bursting out from somewhere you know anywhere I would come bursting out so from the moment it started it was like oh my gosh you know like it really caught their attention and then I would grab a saxophone and play some tunes or I'd you know do this crazy stuff I'd grab an accordion and play something and <laughs> sing a song about respect you know do all oh these things oh my gosh and, and the would... kids I mean it really was something that connected with them and I knew that because I'd be invited back to the school and two or three years later, kids would say, oh my God, I remember this guy, you know, and I remember his song about respect and song about passwords and all this kind of stuff, you know. So it was, it was super fun. Well, I really hope that for your listeners, you have some video of you dancing around playing these songs <laughs> on your website. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was Benny DL. <laughs> Benny, Benny DL, a crazy DJ. And uh, so then, you know... After the show, they'd come up for autographs and they would be like, well, where's Benny DL, you know? Or they'd say that after Benny DL disappeared, at least. <laughs> That's amazing. You know? So, yeah, it was a lot of fun. But uh, I just love some of these tips that you share with people about uh, speaking and, and the partnership that you need to have with the audience and how you use curiosity and empathy and, and vulnerability, because once you can use vulnerability from the stage, wow, that makes a huge difference. Tell us about how you came to start doing that. Well, it, there, there's a, a story I tell when I was first learning about what clown is. I took a clown class in Los Angeles. And one of the mm -hmm. tough exercises that you do when you're developing these skills is an uh, uh, exercise called Save the Show. And here's how it works. You stand on the, you stand up on stage, the, the class is in the audience, the teacher's in the audience, and you'll be with a clap, you must enter the stage and make everybody laugh with no preparation at all. But the teacher has already given the audience, and this is all everyone understands, there is to be no pity laughter. The laughter can only come if it involuntarily comes forth. So it's a rough crowd, it's definition of a rough crowd. And you can't prepare so you can't tell you know your five minutes stand up or anything like that so i remember when i first was going to do this and i was standing backstage i was sweating super nervous trying to plan all these physical things i was going to do i was my brain was racing racing how can i how can i make these people laugh what can i do to make them laugh so he clapped i came running out i was doing like fart noises with my arm and 
and making funny faces, running into the wall, pretending to trip, and just silence. Just pure painful. Just And just getting yeah. worse, worse. I could see the audience just repulsed by how desperate I was up there until I finally stopped. And I just looked everybody in the eye. I was pouring sweat. And I, my, I just dropped my shoulders. And I just was authentic. And I was like, uh, what do you guys want? And at that moment, the tension broke. Everybody laughed. Everybody laughed at that moment. And I realized, oh, if I just acknowledge the energy, if I acknowledge what's going on, if I acknowledge what's going on in the present, if I'm mindful with what's going on with the present, that is going to connect me to the audience. It's not how funny I am. It's how present I am. Uh, and that is what I've taken forward into public speaking and also further comedy stuff. One of the things I liked the most was doing Q&A. And I think just because I got used to it and I would scan the audience and I knew from almost the beginning, I knew who I wanted to talk to in that audience, you know, mm -hmm. and it'd be somebody that was really trying to get a reaction from other people around them or, you know, they were one of those kinds of people. And I didn't know what they were going to say, but I knew they were going to try to be a smart ass or they were going to try to do something to, to sort of knock me off you know, knock me off my routine or whatever it was. And then I would practice kind of reversing it. And it was just really a cool experience for me. Wow. I suppose you've done lots of Q&A and stuff like that, have you? Sure. Yeah, yeah. Uh, when I'm at trade shows, uh, I'm hired by these companies to speak on a very high-level topic. I don't get into the weeds of the technology. So I need to be very adept at when I get questions, smoothly passing them off to the engineers to answer the mm -hmm. questions. Uh, right. So that becomes a skill in itself, how to not uh, act as if the question is not important, but also not put myself on the spot where I'm saying incorrect information. So, yeah, there's a whole skill to Q&A, as I'm sure you've learned. Yeah. So your book, which is called Wink, transforming public speaking with clown presence i'm just wondering uh what it was like writing that book and if you ran into any uh blips when you were putting all this together because you have to be able to communicate with the reader in a way that's different than it is communicating from the stage right for sure i mean it, it was interesting I wrote this kind of at the conclusion of the pandemic when I'd been teaching the public speaking class at Google a lot. So mm -hmm. it actually came from those courses because I was t tweaking them. You know, I was kind of building the airplane as I was flying through the air and I would get feedback after every class and mid class and I'd be changing the curriculum all the time. So I was really looking for because I, clown and performance and acting and all that stuff is very foreign to a person who just has to deliver a quarterly update presentation at their work. And so oh. it was interesting to figure out, OK, what can I pull from this world that can help these folks? It's not written for actors. It's written for the person who has to deliver those nerve wracking presentations at work now and then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so just getting myself into the framework, into the perspective of those folks was the first kind of, I wouldn't say it was a, a hurdle, 
Um, but it was fun kind of getting myself into that perspective. And then it just kind of flowed and just, I mean, I'm sure, you know, you write a book, it's a big pain in the butt. Am I right? Like you got to sit down. Last thing you want to do is start typing. Uh, but you know, in terms of mindfulness, uh, the thing that saved my butt was Pomodoro technique. I would just set a timer for 20 minutes and just like, all I got to do, Don type for 20 minutes. doesn't have to be perfect 20 minutes and then you can go have a coffee. And that's yeah. what got me through my book. Wow. And your book has over a hundred ratings and they're like, just, they rave about your book. It's just fantastic how much people have, have gotten from your book and improved their speaking skills. But what do you do with somebody who is a jerk and a hater? And, you know, do, do you deal with this very often, either online or anywhere else? Uh, well, I get hecklers at trade shows now and then, and... I think it goes back to the idea of le jeu and finding pleasure in those interactions, finding pleasure in being there. And when it comes to dealing with someone who's being antagonistic, you're never going to win by being mean back. It's just, oh no, it's never, you're never going to win. So the only way to handle it is being curious and compassionate. That's really my two words that I always bring when I'm dealing with any kind of audience interaction, curiosity and compassion. Like, why do you, why do you ask that? Uh, And then in my brain, like maybe they're having a bad day, that sort of thing. And again, becoming adept at acknowledging the question. One tip I give for folks who maybe uh, are dealing with these kind of questions at work is have a parking lot, meaning, have a either a shared document or a whiteboard where you can because sometimes if you say let, I'm going to answer that question offline it sounds to everybody in the audience well he's just ignoring that question yeah, you know that yeah. question will never be uttered again but if you write it down and show everybody you're writing it down I'm going to deal with this after I'm going to write it down it kind of feels a little bit more put to bed and it's like it will be taken care of and it can keep the questioner at bay as well yeah good tip yeah, that's that's very good. I, I recently read a book by David Goggins, The Navy Seal, and and he talked about how he uses those negative comments and nasty haters and so on as fuel. He actually re- turns it around, and for him, he just has created this. It's almost like a brain trick, I think, in a way that. If he gets that, it's fuel, and he'll even listen to the recording over and over and play it in loops of people's, you know, putting negative comments on or something. I've never actually heard of anything that extreme before. That sounds <laughs> like you? a nightmare. <laughs> I know. That's what I thought at first. And I thought, well, if you can turn it into fuel, you know, you better do it. That's pretty awesome. <laughs> well, I think, uh, you know, because I get feedback from my classes all the time, and occasionally it's negative feedback. And I do have a reaction, and that's part of mindfulness. I mean, acknowledging yeah. and honoring that reaction, pushing that reaction down isn't mindfulness. It isn't helping, no. and it's only going to come out sideways at some point. So kind of what I shoot for is to be aware enough where I can get it, set it aside, deal with it, like honor my emotions, honor my reactions, And then after the emotions have subsided, being able to honestly look at it and say, is there anything productive in this? Is there anything I can take away that will help me make my content better? For me, help me serve 
the people I'm trying to teach better. And usually there is something in there, but I need to let my initial reaction kind of simmer down and take care of that. I call it like your inner child or whatever. Take care of that person. Be like, it's okay. It's all right. Let's take another look for grown up Don. We'll take a look at this. Yeah, right. Well, that's very interesting how you do that. Do you have any comments or a story or anything you can share with us about bullying yourself where maybe it's related to mindfulness? Well, I was thinking about that. I mean, I was bullied a little bit in elementary school. And I think if if grown-up Don's brain was back there... Uh, I think it become it becomes so much about the bully. I'm so much focused on that person and um, what do they want? Like, how do I this and that? Where it's hard to just simply step back and look at it from a 10,000 foot view and be like, can I just avoid this situation? Like, and this has come into clearer focus these days because at the end of each year, I'll do kind of an evaluation of the year. I forget, I, somebody, some famous podcaster did this. I don't remember mm -hmm. his name, forgive me. And rather than do uh, uh, goals for the next year or commitments or anything like that, I just look through the prior year, find the top three negative experiences, top three positive experiences. And then I try and put the top three positive experiences on my calendar, like ASAP, make a commitment, mm -hmm. put the deposit down. And then for the neg negative experiences, I just see like, is there a way I can minimize the opportunities to even have this, these experiences? And for me, most of the time, it's people, people who are difficult for me to deal with personally, with my own issues. And that's actually been really helpful looking at it almost from a clinical perspective. Like I don't have to be in that situation. I can make other choices. I don't have to try and change them. I don't have to change myself to not get into conflict with them. I'll just avoid it. Like uh, sometimes I can't, sometimes I have larger goals. That means I, I have to deal with them, but that's been really helpful. And I think if I was talking to little Don, I would say, Hey, that person is who they are. We can't change them. How can we change our choices to minimize what they're doing? Yeah, good advice. Yeah, thank you for that. Don, as we move forward in the interview, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has been a mindfulness influence in your life? Gosh, mindfulness influence. First, I just read an Alan Watts book, so I have to say Alan Watts. Sorry, it's pretty uh, hippie in 1950s philosophy, but Alan Watts. Pretty interesting, though. <laughs> pretty interesting. My second question is about your emotions and uh, just really how mindfulness has helped you with your emotions and to deal with your emotions. Mindfulness has helped me deal with my emotions because I can physicalize them and I love picturing where fear sits and describing it. That is very, very helpful in removing some of the motivation that it puts through my body. Right, right. 
Okay, my, my next question is about breathing. We haven't talked about this at all, but do you have some comments about breathing, maybe how it's helped you in speaking or how it helps you in day-to-day life as it is related to mindfulness? Breathing is the most important thing when it comes to presenting. And it's not what very technical people want to hear because it feels very esoteric and not heady. But the fact is, it's made the biggest difference in me, like deep breathing, box breathing, prior to big presentations. Yeah, and I imagine you address that in your book as well. Yes. Yeah. And uh, well, you've mentioned a number of books. Do you have any other books that you want to mention that are related to mindfulness? I think, weirdly enough, The Artist's Way And more specifically, there's an exercise, and I'm not even sure which week it was in it, or maybe she just describes it, but I remember making a list of things I liked to do as a kid and using that as fuel for what they call artist dates. But that has, your listeners, some some folks, when you ask, what do you just like to do for for fun. Some people are bewildered. They're like, I don't know what I like to do for fun. It always has to have a purpose, but that's incredibly helpful. Yeah. It was incredibly helpful for me as well to think back. Yeah. That's a good question. What, when I was seven years old, what did I love to do? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, are there any apps at all that you find are helpful for mindfulness? Well, I use insight timer every morning. Oh yeah. 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 And that's simple just a t- countdown timer and it gives a nice sound. It's not an annoying beep that's on your regular timer of your phone. So insight timer. Yeah. Yeah. I like insight timer as well. So as we uh, wrap things up here, Don, I want to ask you if you have any final words of advice for our, our mindful tribe listeners. Well, I'm currently working on a keynote speech. Uh, I was, blessed to be invited to speak at the Toastmasters International Convention this year in the Bahamas. And so I've been putting a lot of thought about what is my message. And I think it all boils down to this. You're already enough. You're just already enough. And all the training for public speaking specifically and all this other stuff, it's just cleaning mechanisms to get the muck away so yourself that's already enough can shine through. I really like that, yeah, because that's that's true. So many of us feel like we have to change or we have to be different or we have to be more perfect or whatever it is, and the truth is we don't. That's that's right. Yeah. yeah. Sounds, there's, things, sounds... there's things getting in the way of your message, but that doesn't mean you're wrong. It just means we can remove those things and make yourself shine through more clearly. Yeah, I'm I'm fascinated that you enjoyed Toastmasters. I've been in Toastmasters myself and really enjoyed it a lot. I thought it was so much fun. What did you enjoy most about Toastmasters in your first couple of years of being part of it? Uh, You just get an opportunity to speak every single meeting, you know, Um, even if it's you're delivering the number of filler words that other people had in the meeting. Just for me, that was so helpful because you just get comfortable speaking in front of 10 or 12 people, depending upon the size of your club. Yeah, I enjoyed that so much as well. Yeah, well, Don, I sure enjoyed talking to you and having you as a guest on Mindfulness Mode. Thank you so much for being here. 
Thank you, Bruce. This has been awesome. Yeah, it has. Take care. Bye now. Hey, Mindful Tribe. Want to get better sleep? Want to be more relaxed? Want to build your immune system? Well, my sponsor, Athletic Greens, has a product that you might just really love. And I know I do. It's called AG1. It contains 75 high-quality vitamins, minerals, whole food source ingredients, and probiotics. And it contains less than one gram of sugar, no GMOs, no nasty chemicals or artificial ingredients. You mix it with water and it, it, like I said, supports better sleep and better alertness as well. And Athletic Greens uses the best products based on the latest science and it costs less than $3 a day. So if you're interested in this Mindful Tribe, here is a special offer just for you. Athletic Greens is going to give you a free one-year supply of immune-supporting vitamin D and five free travel packs with your first purchase. All you have to do is visit athleticgreens.com mindfulness. So with that, take what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.